Welcome back to our third and final episode for the time being about Eve. Today, we're going to talk through what we commonly think of as the curse of Eve or just kind of the general consequences or the after effects of her choice. Today's topic, I, I've got my moisturizer, I've got my nail polish, I'm settling in for some self-care because these topics, oof, they are heavy. And I feel like, I feel like these are things that it took me years and years to feel comfortable with. And now I can read this account and feel a sense of empowerment, but I know that for myself and for so many women across the world, throughout the history of the world, uh, it's triggering and it can be a pain point. And these words at the end of Genesis three have sometimes been weaponized against women to hold them to really unfair expectations. But I don't know, like, how do you guys feel about it? Am I the only one who felt that way? No, definitely not. I think this is probably like the account that is responsible for so much of the misogyny in the world, right? Is this, the the curses, quote unquote curses that we'll talk about that have been placed on Eve and just the idea that she's responsible, right, for suffering and the fall has definitely been something that has been weaponized against women. The idea of her needing to be in pain in childbirth and conception and these things for sure have all been used to try and show that women are supposed to, you know, feel pain, supposed to be suffering in their mortal existence. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I know for me, just looking at this in the traditional paradigm sets me up for so many difficulties because then when I look at this and I see your husband will rule over you, which it seems almost unavoidable, at least growing up, I felt like that was a clear declaration of like hierarchy. And if you accept that, then so much else of what we do in the church and in society fits into that same hierarchical model. And it's really difficult to extract any sense of empowerment or equality from our rituals and our ordinances and even some of our doctrine. These verses are some of the verses that just echoed in my mind when I was really in kind of the depths of despair and darkness and really doubting my own worth and my eternal destiny. These verses can be really painful if you take them the way that we have traditionally taken them. These verses and these ideas and these consequences that we're going to talk about today, they're really important. If we get these verses wrong, it's really easy to denigrate women or to believe that there is a natural hierarchy or something like that. Uh, Yeah. If I could tell you how many DMs I got a couple of months ago when I was asking women about their impressions, when they walked away from the temple, what they and their husbands walked away feeling like they learned. If I could tell you how many women told me that their husbands 
truly believed and understood that the moral of the story they were being taught from the temple and the Genesis account was that Eve had done something wrong. Adam was smarter than her. Adam was holier than her. Adam deserved the right to speak for her. Adam always inherently kind of had some, some kind of upper hand or authority that was superior to hers. And so Eve not deferring to Adam was the ultimate sin kind of is, is what they take from the story rather than how necessary it was for Adam to follow Eve's lead, how courageous it was of her to actually pick the plan of salvation and her relationship with God above all things. I feel like people really miss that. And what's, what's heartbreaking about these scriptures, what's heartbreaking about the nuance of the rhetoric is we really can't prove, we don't know we don't know what the author intended. And it's possible that this author really was speaking from some serious bias and really was throwing down on Eve. That's absolutely possible. And we kind of have to be ready to embrace that nuance. But what's hopeful and what's encouraging is that we can have this conversation and hopefully see how on the flip side, it actually might be suggesting something quite empowering and having this discussion is so enriching. Just talking about the possibilities and putting it out there empowers me as a woman so much so that when I look at these scriptures now, I rub my hands together and say, all right, here we go. Because I feel a very keen sense of love, protection, education, and empowerment being bestowed upon Eve and upon Adam. I see the suggestion of hierarchy here, but the things that we're going to talk about tonight, I think really challenge that. And I hope bring a lot of peace and security and equality to a lot of marriages that have honestly been really tripped up by the misconceptions of this account. Yeah. And like you said, Jessica, that in relationships and marriages, but also just, you know, as individuals, women get the message too, right? That that we are inferior from this account. We can get that message. And also from, like you said, from the temple experience that we can come away with that message. And that's something that I definitely struggle with in the temple. The temple not, has not been a place that brought me a lot of peace and happiness because of these things that were mentioned because of some of the ordinances that we perform in the temple. But I like that at least in our theology with Mormonism, there's room for growth, right? And interpretation, and we're not tied to the text. And there's room for reinvention and reinterpretation. And we've seen that as well recently. With temple changes, whether big or small, we have seen that and we can, we have room for growth, right? So we have room to expand upon the scriptures and to have people like you who can reinterpret for us and move in that direction. Like that's something that is real that we do see within our theology, which I think is really beautiful. Jessica, something that you said in our last episode, while I was editing it, I had to literally stop and just listen to it a couple of times because it was so powerful and the Spirit spoke to me so strongly. As you were talking about the big picture of this story, 
of one of the major themes to come out of Adam and Eve's story being their transition from nakedness to being clothed and the serpent remaining naked. I love the way that you put that into this context of it being such a triumphant conclusion to this story. It's another piece of evidence for me to view this story and to view specifically Eve's choice and her role and their descent to mortality as a win, as a triumph for all of God's children. And I kind of want to start off with that because I think that puts everything else in context. In my mind, if the intent had been for Adam and Eve to stay in the garden and to be clothed, I think God would have clothed them in the garden. And I find it really striking that only after they partake does the triumph come. So God knew they were going to partake and that they were supposed to. And so this moment, and we'll talk about each of the different, what we normally call curses, as well as the aprons and the clothing. But I feel like putting that in the context and seeing that ultimately God clothes them as a sign of their triumph. That allows me to see everything else that God says to the man and the woman in a new light. I just want to say that I entirely agree. This element of the story, understanding the act of clothing Adam and Eve is so important and so central also to understanding the ascension that clothing represents in the temple ceremony. And you said that in a way a few months ago when we first talked about this, that shook me and meant so much to me. You talked about it like the literal act of clothing is ascension. And I've often thought about it like a graduation ceremony. There's always with a royal coronation layering of clothing that's involved. And it's always a sign of honor and glory and not shame. And I find that profound. Yeah, I think the more that I study about ritual clothing and the role that it plays in accounts of ascension and learning and growth and and stepping into a new body, a new life, this higher level of existence, the more power that comes with this ritual act to me. In the apocryphal work, The Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah, we read this account as Isaiah ascends through the seven levels of heaven, he receives new garments, new clothing, which enables him to ascend. At one point, Isaiah's guide tells him, when from the body by the will of God, thou hast ascended hither, meaning to the highest heaven, then thou wilt receive the garment which thou seest, and likewise other numbered garments laying up. And when he ascends through these heavens, in, in his vision, he hears a voice saying, It is permitted to the holy Isaiah to ascend hither, for here is his garment. And he sees Enoch and all who were with him, stripped of the garments of the flesh, standing in great glory in the garments of the upper world. So, We get this, I love this description, because we get this clear account of the symbolism of a garment representing stepping into a higher level of existence, coming closer to God. 
as you're talking, I'm like getting so excited. I'm like freaking out of my mind because this came at the perfect timing because I am currently in the process of uploading to YouTube right now, my video on the descent of Ishtar. And I've got a few posts that I'm planning on putting on my Instagram page about this myth, the, the descent of Ishtar or Inanna's descent, whichever goddess or version you prefer. This legend is so profound. And I felt like, I don't know if my other classmates felt this way, but my time at BYU, I felt like we constantly came back to it again and again and again. It has so much significance in iconography. And as far as the feminine divine is concerned, the themes of death, descent, resurrection, suffering for another, self-sacrifice, and pure love that we typically ascribe to the savior. This is ascribed to a mother goddess who descends into the underworld to go and visit her sister who's just lost her husband. And Inanna is this goddess who has so much love and compassion for her sister that even though she knows typically no one can ever come back from the underworld once you go, she still dares to go. And there are seven levels down. Isn't that insane because I know Mandy's talked about this and I've heard you talk about these findings before too, that there are seven levels to heaven. There were seven levels to the underworld. And at each of these seven gates, Inanna, who's decked out from head to toe in her royal garments, in a crown, in beads, in a breastplate, she even carries a scepter, which is very symbolic in terms of the temple ritual. She's asked to give up one of these articles at each one of the gates. And what Eresh Kigal has done by asking Inanna to do this is she's purposely stripping her sister of her power. And we don't know if Eresh Kigal was just jealous of Inanna or where her evil heart came from, but she's just terrible. She's just the worst and she's so cruel. And this story, although it's tragic what happens to Ishtar Inanna it's beautiful the emphasis that is placed on the power of clothing and it really does draw my mind to that experience with the savior where the woman who had the issue of blood she reached out and she touched the hem of his garment and obviously we know it wasn't the clothing that healed her it was her faith but there was something very profound. There was some semblance of virtue or power that's symbolized in clothing. And of course, we know that the word for atonement in Hebrew is kippur, which also comes from the same root for the verb to cover. So when the tabernacle was covered, when we wear our garments, when we cover our body with those sacred weavings, when we think of a veil and so many other elements of ritual worship, the act of covering something, the act of clothing something is really a symbol of the atonement. So before we get further into the symbolism of God making these coats of skin, because there's a lot to talk about that, let's back up for just a minute. Right after Adam and Eve partake, we read in Genesis 3 verse 7 that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And I'm really curious to hear your guys' interpretations of this and what this symbolism means for you. 
But I find something really beautiful here. So I used to kind of view this as, well, Adam and Eve partook. They saw that they were naked and then like stupid them. They thought they could imitate the clothing. And so they tried to make their, <laughs> they tried to make themselves clothing out of leaves. Like how dumb. <laughs> and I don't view it that way anymore. It's interesting to me in one Islamic interpretation, Adam and Eve were instructed by angels how to make their aprons, which indicates some kind of divine role and symbolism, some ritualistic value for this item of clothing. So my personal interpretation, one of my personal interpretations of this symbolism is that as we clothe ourselves with the fig leaf, which you know, might have been from the same tree that they just barely partook of. It's very symbolic to me of the knowledge that we gain and the experience that we gain in mortality. And it almost represents my role as a co-creator with God. I am fashioning for myself part of my soul that I'm going to carry with me throughout an eternity. And the mortality, the knowledge that I am bringing is going to continue with me. So that's just my personal interpretation. But I wonder if the garments of skin that we're going to talk about later are representative of the Savior's sacrifice, which I think they are. If they show him opening the doors to mortality and eternal life, I wonder if maybe these aprons represent Eve's sacrifice to open the door to mortality and experiential knowledge. Okay. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you brought this up because I've been thinking about this very thing recently kind of going through a change of mind. Because for me, especially like going through the temple, I used to interpret this as, you know, them sewing together fig leaves. I feel like what it represents shifting from the fig leaves to a coat of skins. uh, We know that like some sacrifice probably of an animal would have had to be involved, which is, which is meant to point our minds to Jesus Christ. So I always interpreted that as, okay, the fig leaves are a reminder that we can't do it alone. We can't do it by ourselves. We can't get through the trials of this life or the pits that we go through by our own knowledge. It's wonderful to have our eyes open, but we can't do it alone. And so I always interpreted them as a reminder of, okay, I accept and I acknowledge that I can't go through this life on my own. And and that's kind of always what I got from it. But but I really loved what you said and something about the color green too. Green is really symbolic. I think in, in Judaism, I think what it symbolizes is the idea of progression. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I had always understood that green was the color of progression. And I loved what you said about it honoring Eve's decision and it being a reminder of what they had done for themselves and how, Truly, you know, I've heard it said somewhere that in the pre-existence, when we fought in the war in heaven, that what we fought with was the power of our testimonies. And there were choices and sins we could commit in the pre-existence and who we became was a summation of our choices. And so it's actually quite beautiful what you're saying, if they were actually adorned in glory by aprons of their own making and that these fig leaves were special. And I, 
I kind of started thinking about that because I was listening to one of Mandy Green's classes and she was talking about how when we talk about fear of the Lord, oftentimes in the Old Testament, it means reverence. So in the Bible dictionary, when you look up the definition of fear, it says the first thing that Adam and Eve did once they partook of the fruit was they were afraid. And I've always used, I always used to love that. I always used to think that was really poetic, but I actually read that now and I'm a little bit dismayed, not because it's incorrect necessarily, but because actually the first thing that happened when they ate the fruit was their eyes were opened. And that was a glorious thing that, that right off the bat, before we even talk about curses, that was the immediate blessing that came to them. And that was the first thing that happened when they partook of the fruit. And perhaps rather than seeing that they were afraid, I wonder if because their eyes were opened and they loved God, maybe they understood that clothing themselves was a way to reverence him. And and maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't so much them cowering in fear as much as it was them trying to trying to take accountability actually for what they had done and trying to show up with what reverence they could before the Lord. I honestly think that that's a bit of a stretch to say. I, and, and I think that most rabbinical interpretations of this account would very much disagree with that. So I don't know, ignore that. It's just food for thought, whatever you, oh, listener, think of that. But I don't know, maybe there was something rather sweet about them sewing together their fig leaves rather than bitter. Yeah. And definitely in everything that I shared, that's just my own interpretation. (laughs) So take that all with a grain of salt there. But I do think there is something really beautiful about the way that they became co-creators. I mean, this is the first record that we really have of them making anything. And so it's interesting that as soon as they partake of the tree here, they're embracing a creative power in one way and they become creators oh my gosh okay I feel like Janet on friends like every word you're saying I'm like oh my gosh Chandler Bang but seriously um I'm so excited that you said that because my friend I made a new friend her name is April she's amazing and I look up to her so much she's wonderful and we've been conversing about this very topic recently and synthesizing together. And she said to me something so profound. She said, isn't it a wonder that just after they gained knowledge or wisdom, we see that the very act or talent of sewing is a skill that they developed, or at least that they were trying to develop or had some capacity to be aware of, ah, I have a thought. If I take this and sew it together here, then this will cover my body. It's it's quite innovative of them to think to do that. Yeah, I think that is really, I think all of those thoughts are super beautiful too. And I love, like you said, Alin, that they become co-creators and that their first act is that we see is them sewing the aprons or making these aprons, which in my mind also reflects what we've talked about in past episodes, right? Of the mother being like this weaver of clothing and of garments that their first act after partaking of wisdom is to create a garment that we can see maybe her influence in. 
and also the fig leaves themselves, right? Representing wisdom as well. And maybe, yeah, maybe they decided to make these aprons and to clothe themselves in them as this way of remembering we chose this and we chose it in wisdom and we chose it for wisdom. And that's the goal, like as we journey into this mortal life and as it is this descent, which we sometimes can, can and will probably be, um, mourning, be in mourning about, right. As times come that are hard and that are challenging, like let this serve as a reminder that the goal is wisdom and that descent, even though we are in a descent, that we are still closed in glory. It's not, it's not a wrong path, but it is God's path and that the descent is part of the ascension that they're inherently tied. And I love that idea of that, like being a way to serve as a reminder for what the real goal is. And also, as you were talking about Jessica, that once their eyes were open, that that was their first, the first thing that happened when they partook of the fruit was their eyes were open. And then they had fear or reverence of the, of the Lord or of God, the fear of God, as we talked about last time too, right now that they had partaken of wisdom or that they had partaken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were actually able to know God. They were actually able to have a reverence for God instead of just just having a blind faith. Is that an appropriate expression? And honestly to that, what I feel as I've been reflecting specifically on my 20s, which have been full of so much trauma and turbulence and so many intense experiences that are really hard uh, to find friends that can relate. It, it's strange because I've, I've been through a lot of unique experiences from the time that I left for my mission to Poland that it's, it's difficult to feel like anyone else can relate. And so it, it's kind of pushed me to intensely lean on, look at, even sometimes question my relationship with God, with my heavenly parents, but it's helped me to relate to them. I don't know that there's a single experience I've been through in my life that has not taught me more of the mind of God. I don't think there's a single thing that's been wasted. And so something I've been really reflecting on recently, and I've talked about in my videos on descent, but don't feel that I quite eloquently expressed it the way I wanted to, is just that I don't really think that the gospel is so much about us always knowing what's true or knowing what's right. I think it's actually about us getting to a point of spiritual maturity in embracing that there's a lot we seriously do not know. And are we okay with it? And what does this mean for our relationship with God? Is there a relationship with God? Does it still shine through? And, you know, I've been in so many situations where my heart has just been broken. And I feel like every single limit that I've ever had on my energy and my being has been stretched and has been broken. And yet, as I'm searching for the what the heck and the why is this happening? And I'm looking for reasons. I don't have a reason 
for a lot of the things that I went through and why I went through them, but I do have a relationship. I think that that's ultimately the only point that matters. I know we talk a lot in church about, well, we need to do this and this to be righteous, or we need to achieve such and such ordinance to receive all that we need. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I think the only thing that's going to matter is our relationships and specifically our relationship with the divine. And even though I don't have a reason, there's not always a reason in the trials that I go through or meaning behind them. There's not always a reason, but there always is wisdom to be had. And I don't just mean a lesson learned, but if heavenly mother, if our heavenly parents are the embodiment of that wisdom, then they are always with us. And, you know, like in my marriage, my husband and I, we've been through so much crap since we've gotten married. We've been through so many difficult things that sometimes I just want to scream and shake my fist at heaven and ask what the heck is going on. I, I've done everything right. Why is this happening? But, but what a thrill and what an honor it is to go through those things with the person I love more than anything in the world. And we don't know why we go through tough things in life, but it's so much richer to have him with me. And for everything that I've been through and things that I've questioned, that's kind of what I lean on is that I don't really have a reason why I go through things, but I do have a relationship with God. And it means a lot to feel that they are both really there and that they care. And I also think that going through those things, it it really does open your eyes to relate to God so much more uh, when you just really get a depth for the darkness of the world, the questions of your faith. I ultimately think that all of us are going to have to get to a point where we embrace the ambiguity for our faith to go anywhere. And if we don't, I think we're seriously lacking something. And I think we're stuck in Eden. So let's dive into what we call the curses. So when we talk about the curse of Eve, we typically are talking about the negative things that are breathed to Eve in verse 16, talking about pregnancy, pain in childbirth, and her husband ruling over her. And we call this a curse, but I just want to say that before anything of a curse is even mentioned or implied as pertaining to Eve, In verse 15, we see a very clear blessing being granted to her. It states, And I, the Lord, will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the first thing that I want to point out is, From this chapter, and specifically from these last few verses at the end of this account, a lot of people tend to take from them this justification that man is supposed to rule over women, that Eve did something wrong, and therefore she's being punished for it. But I really just want to emphasize that if the Lord were truly cursing Eve, why would he associate the lineage of the Savior as coming through her? and not Adam. And I say that because throughout the scriptures, whenever children are mentioned, children are typically attributed as their father's child, right? This is the tradition from the beginning of the world. And yet here, at the beginning of all things, before any children are even born, 
Eve is specifically distinguished as the primary ancestor of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, Adam is equally implied, but it is special and it is profound that Eve was the one who partook of the fruit. Eve was the one who opened the eyes of both herself and her husband and enabled the way for all of mankind. And she is being given this distinction as not only a type of Christ, but as the mother of Christ who will eventually come to the world as well. What a blessing. What a beautiful promise of hope, of love, and of validation for what she had just done. I see this verse as one of the ultimate signs that what Eve did was a triumph and that she's being lauded for it by all the hosts of heaven. The Lord says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman because in verse 14, the Lord says that the serpent is the one who is cursed. The only time that a being, a person is cursed in this account is the serpent in verse 14, not Eve. There's never a moment where Eve is labeled as being cursed. Only the serpent is. And immediately following this declaration that it's the serpent who's cursed, we see the woman being given this promise that it will be her seed that shall bruise his head. And I find that profound because if you remember the scripture in Judges 9 that talks about that woman who stands on the tower and she literally crushes the head of this wicked narcissistic king by hoisting up this rock and dropping it on his head. I see that as such a beautiful fulfillment of this promise that was given to Eve. And I do think that there's something to be said in this verse, in verse 15, that enmity, that intentional manipulation of the serpent throughout the history of the world. I really do feel that because of Eve's decision, I feel like this was the birth of misogyny. This enmity between the serpent and the woman, I really do feel like what's being foreshadowed and foretold is the birth of patriarchy and misogyny and that this will be something that constantly harasses the heels of the daughters, but ultimately like that woman on the tower, I really do think that it will be the daughters who hold in their hands the stone. Christ himself in the book of Matthew compares himself to a stone. And I believe that it will be the daughters hand in hand with Christ, who in the end, at the end of all things, will crush the head of all evil, all patriarchy, all injustice. And that's a beautiful promise that's specifically given to Eve in this account. So before there's any curse, there's this massive blessing being granted to her. That's beautiful. I love that emphasis on like the first thing that said about Eve is her association with the Savior. That's beautiful. So in Genesis 3.16, where we often get this connotation of curses, well, I want to talk through some of the specifics there because I think we should break down some of these words. So the, at the very beginning, when God says that he will greatly multiply sorrow and conception. So this, this phrase that's used, harbah arbeh, greatly multiply. So first of all, this root is very common in Hebrew. 
And it almost always carries the idea of multiplying in quantity, not in intensity. So the first thing to point out here is that whether or not this word is referring to pain and childbirth, which I don't think it is, we're going to talk about that. It's even if it is, it's going to be talking about, I will increase the number of times that you have seed, (laughs) essentially. One of the best ways to understand this is in Genesis 16.10, when the angel of the Lord says to Hagar, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And then in 22.17, when the God is speaking to Abraham, he says, in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore. We often hear this phrase of multiplying seed, and our first thought, at least my first thought, is often the Abrahamic covenant. But if we're looking for the first example of this blessing, we really should be referencing Eve, not Abraham. God is saying that he will make Eve's seed great. One of the greatest blessings in the world of the Old Testament is posterity. So I think that's really interesting, first of all, is this multiplication of quantity, not intensity. Now, there's two other things that I really want to talk about here that put this phrase in a very interesting perspective. First of all, we've got this idea of childbirth. So again, we often read this and we think this means that women are intended to have pain during childbirth. (laughs) Well, the word that's used here is heron. And there's this really rich vocabulary present in ancient Hebrew to describe each aspect of the process of conception and pregnancy and childbirth. And there's nuances to each word. This word, heron, as Carol Myers summarized, it refers to the period of pregnancy or the state of being pregnant, not the process of childbirth. So saying that she's supposed to have pain and labor is not really accurate because this word doesn't mean a stage of labor. So that's one thing that I wanted to spell there. The second one is the idea, the word pain and sorrow. This word, itzabon, it's a noun. And the verbal root of it, as used in the Bible, in all but one case, explicitly refers to psychological or emotional discomfort or grief and not to physical pain. So if I compare this to the scene in The Pearl of Great Price, where we see God weeping for his children, then I see this as a declaration of the divine empathy and love that a parent is to have for their children. Now, one other aspect that we should talk about this word is that this is the same word used in the next verse, where Adam is promised to eat his bread in itzabon, which could mean sorrow or toil. In Genesis 5.29, this word clearly means work and toil. So something really interesting, if you look at this and if you are curious more about some of the breakdowns of these words... Carol Myers has a fantastic chapter on this in her book, Discovering Eve. Putting these phrases together with the nuances of toil and work and pregnancy, Carol Myers said that this phrase sets forth the woman's enlarged role in the productive tasks of society, that the female contribution to society is thus intensified by virtue of a quantitative expansion of these two aspects 
a female existence. And if you look at the next line in the next verse where it says that the etzeb or in sorrow, as we read, you shall bring forth children more likely. Again, this is Carol Meyer's words here. More likely this phrase should be read as with the preposition bait. So with sorrow, not in sorrow, but along with toil, you will bring forth children. And so very far removed from how I grew up hearing this as a declaration of woman's intense pain during childbirth. To me, this phrase says, I will give you posterity, you will be a mother, and you will do a lot of other things. You will also work. That's one interpretation, and that's a very narrow interpretation. It's not common, but I find it really interesting that you can read that nuance there. I love that you pointed out Eve's connection to the Abrahamic covenant, because to me, this is everything. And um, there's a beautiful scripture in which Jesus is kind of pulling the leg of the Pharisees and the people that are around him when they're heckling him about the law. And I love that Christ says, verily, verily, I, I say unto you before Abraham was, I am. And it's very profound because, of course, the name of the Lord being Yahweh, the holy tetragrammaton that he would have pronounced in this moment. We've talked before about how there's this beautiful parallel there to the name of Eve. And so just as a poetic nuance, sometimes when I read these verses, I like to think to myself, verily, verily, I say unto thee before Abraham was Hava. And that's just a little joke <laughs> for me in Hebrew, but it means the world to me because I wish that we called this the Hava covenant. I wish that we called this Eve's covenant because before anything was ever breathed to Abraham of children like the sand upon the seashore and the stars in the sky without number, Eve was the first one to be given this promise. Again, you would think that if Eve had done something worthy of a punishment, that this would be directed towards Adam and that he would be called the father of all living. But he's not. Eve is declared the mother of all living. And specifically in verse 16, what I believe is denoted here is an endowment promising her power and seed to accompany the wisdom that she's gained. I liked what you said, quoting Carol Myers on Itzavon and also Heron. I don't want to sound redundant. There are some slight differences to some of the things that Carol Myers proposed to some of the things that I found when I did a project on this in my second year of Hebrew. But what I found is that Itzavon, yes, is frequently translated as sorrow, but it may also mean this concept of toil, hard work, or labor. And to imply this implies someone's strength or their capacity to endure that kind of labor. This carries with it a far more positive connotation as few rewards in life are achieved without some effort or challenge to overcome. For God to greatly multiply Eve's hard work or labor as it relates to childbirth speaks more to their belief in her strength than it does to whatever vengeance or emotional curse has traditionally been attached to this verse. 
I would also say that in other manifestations of this word, a worrisome sense of pain or anxiety is implied. It is therefore extremely tender to me, who's someone who has a lot of daily anxiety and pain and burdens on my mind to imagine the God of all creation anticipating Eve's anxiety and dread and fear that will certainly engulf her in the event of birth. And I don't want to say that to be demeaning about the empowering experience of birth. I know that for many women, there's such a sense of divinity surrounding birth when they unlock the positivity surrounding it. For me, birth was something and still is something that has terrified me to my core. And when I think about Eve being the very first woman to go through this experience completely alone, to have no guide, to have no idea what was happening to her body, I imagine her feeling terrified. I'm sure that other women would imagine her feeling a lot of joy from this. And so this all might just be a really positive connotation. This verse implying that, oh, I'm going to greatly multiply your capacity to go through childbirth. I'm going to greatly multiply your capacity and the number of times you bear children. Maybe that was just a super joyful event. But even if what I'm trying to say is that even if this Hebrew word does imply sorrow, and anxiety. To me, I really relate to that. And to me, it humanizes Eve in a a way that feels so relatable, in a way that makes me cling to her even more as my mother and my ancestor. And it also is just so tender to me to imagine that God would address those worries that would come at the forefront of her physical mortal experience. So before she's even engaged in anything close to getting pregnant, I find it amazing that he's sitting down and having this educational conversation with her, letting her know not just the physical pains, but also the emotional pains that would accompany being a woman. I find that to be extremely tender and loving and compassionate for her heavenly parents to do for her. And you know, growing up when I was going through my own educational process, I remember sitting down with my parents and really wanting them to kind of walk me through a lot of the stresses I was about to go through because my dad, my dad is an OBGYN. And even just like little things like picking birth control and going through that change, it honestly actually really devastated me and was a huge part of my feminist awakening as to everything that women have to go through that men just sometimes don't understand how difficult it is and all the pressures that are put on us either involving getting pregnant or avoiding getting pregnant. There's so many physical and hormonal changes that we just have to put up with because that's the nature of being an adult woman. So I really love thinking of heavenly parents being right there. First thing we want to talk to you about, baby girl, sit down. Let's talk about your body. Let's talk about sexuality. Let's get real. This is what's going to happen. And I think it's really sweet. It reminds me of the messianic description in Isaiah 53, where we have Isaiah speaking of the Savior as a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. And so once again, there's there's something very messianic 
in this pronouncement. Again, even if this is a declaration that you shall experience, whether physical or emotional or mental pain and anguish, that's exactly what the Savior came to do. So we should not expect that we should be able to go throughout this life and that Eve should be able to go throughout this life without experiencing some of what the Savior did. Thank you so much for saying that because I I was kind of thinking about that very thing when Natalie was talking at the beginning that, you know, even if there's nothing empowering to be found, like even if the different translations that we would suggest from this verse, even if those really don't apply, how profound is it to denote Eve's messianic parallel? How how beautiful is it to see how she's a type of Christ, just knowing that just as he came forth suffering pains and afflictions of all mankind, that she's given this declaration that she would also go through the same thing. Thank you for saying that, Alin, and thank you for saying that so articulately that Eve was a woman of sorrows and acquainted with grief, just like Jesus Christ. And that makes her even more an emulation of him. That's so beautiful. So Jessica, you brought up intimacy. And I know that this is something close to your heart as you talk about this word desire and the phrase your desire to your husband and ruling over, because this can be one of the most problematic phrases, but I think it can also be one of the most beautiful and intimate phrases. Okay. So in general, I look at this verse as sex ed 101 for Eve. She's just become an adult mortal woman. In my opinion, eating the fruit, this is just my opinion. This is, you know, not anything that's official from the church. And I don't know what you guys think about this, but for me, I envision when Eve partook of the fruit, there was something of a rush of hormones. I really do think that it's possible that some change in blood was involved, some addition of blood was involved, but whatever was happening, I really do see this as this was the hormonal transition into adulthood for Eve, this moment. And I always kind of envision it like, wow, I wonder if she was just completely overcome by emotions. I can remember that. I can remember being 12 and all of a sudden from out of nowhere, especially especially at night, I would just, I could not fall asleep because I would just be overcome by so many emotions and so many feelings and fears. I don't know if that was anybody else's experience, but I felt very affected. Um, And then moving into my twenties too, I could feel the emotions definitely surging through me a lot. So I've often thought about that with Eve and I've often thought she must've been seriously overwhelmed and seriously freaked out. This was a huge physical transformation in my opinion for her and not just mental and spiritual. So I find it really beautiful that the Lord is addressing the physical implications of being an adult mortal woman because there's so much it's not just about the childbearing. It's about the hormonal consequences of having a period and having a cycle, going through those ups and downs, those phases. And of course, yeah, the possibility of getting pregnant, but not even just that, the, the hormonal influence on 
her emotional connection to Adam, I also think that partaking of the fruit, I think there was an instant change or development in their capacity to feel for each other with mortal bodies. Blood plays a huge role in our attraction to one another, our desire for one another. I, I don't know anything specifically. I'm not a biologist. I have no idea any of these things, but I really do think that there was something that happened when they left the Garden of Eden that, that made it really real. Like, yeah, they were married in the garden, but I do not think or get the sense that they really had intimacy with one another or even could or even desired it in a way that adult understanding and physical development and emotional development enables us to do in our relationships. And when we look at this phrase, thy desire shall be to thy husband. First and foremost, I want to say that I think this is something that's beautiful. And maybe this is something that's negative and that we feel icky about because it implies almost like a sense of rape in a way, like forcing upon her this inclination or desire to be with the man, but then there's this very unjust hierarchy that's also forced upon her as well in this sense of subjugation. It feels like often when I would read this, it would feel like grooming in a way, you know, grooming her to be set up to need and rely on and be totally head over heels. Just her entire world was her husband and her desire was to him, but it says nothing of his desire to her. Um, all that's denoted is that he's over her or that he's smarter or wiser or that disgusting song from The Sound of Music, you know, you're 16 going on 17. I'm a year older than you, so... I'll be your guide and show you how society, you know what I mean? Like I used to think like, oh, Rolf, that's so cute. No, he was a Nazi and he was also a predator. Are you kidding me? Just kidding. He wasn't a predator. They were, there was only like a one age difference. He's not like Jake Gyllenhaal, John Mayer level of predator, but you know what I mean? Like it's the grooming process that feels so icky when we read this and we're thinking of just this imbalance just this idea that a woman is just meant to be dreamy, totally head over heels, everything in her world, it's all about her man. But for the man, it's all about receiving that praise and adoration, and then also receiving authority and power, almost infantilizing her. But I don't see this verse that way. I, like I said, I see this as empowering an adult woman to be able to make decisions because she's being given knowledge about what she can expect of the consequences of adulthood. That's how I read this. And when it says thy desire shall be to thy husband, I, I don't think that this is the Lord commanding anything or forcing anything. I think that it's just a really beautiful, a really beautiful promise of romance. There is something so beautiful about our desires for one another. And so when we look at this in Hebrew, in Hebrew, this word for desire is shin vav kuf. This has a general lexical meaning of attract, impel, or affection. So thy affection shall be to thy husband. However, because this word is actually used so infrequently in the Hebrew Bible from what I've researched, the semantic range is a little more broad. 
And what may have been happening here is that the writer of this account may have been drawing on or reflecting a similar Arabic word, saka. This word saka does imply sexual desire. Yes, which is wonderful, beautiful, awesome. Get it, girl. <laughs> but it can also mean a general sense of desires, wishes, or wants. So here's what's very special to me about this and how this implies to me a sense of equality. So if you look in verse 19, I think it is, it says, Adam hearkened to his wife. This is the Lord speaking to Adam. He addresses him for what happened in the Garden of Eden. And he says, because thou, Adam, hast hearkened unto thy wife. How profound, how profound. I think I had gone through the temple probably like 50 times before I found this verse. And it was like my world completely shifted. It was like, not like someone turned on a light bulb. It was like the sun rose when I found that verse. And I realized that there is word for word in scriptures, a statement that before Eve, you know, before anything was breathed of Adam ruling over or guiding Eve as like a priesthood leader or something like that, Adam first hearkened to her. And that just breathed to me so much of equality and balance in their relationship and also of romance and the devotion that he really must have had for her in the Garden of Eden. He loved her. And so he hearkened to her. And, and that word for hearken, of course, is shema, which is the same kind of hearken that you would give to God in obeying his commandments when God says, hark, all ye nations, like, listen up, my children, like this very reverent and devoted and loyal, faith-driven kind of obedience. That is what the word hearken means. And Adam first demonstrated it to Eve. So What's beautiful is that he aligned his desires with her when he hearkened to her. So it's possible that what's being said here to Eve before any statement is made of thy husband shall rule over you. It's sweet that it says thy desire shall be to or aligned with thy husband, almost as if saying now Eve, your husband, your sweetheart, your smoking hot man who left everything for you, trusting your intuition, make sure that you do the same thing for him. Make sure that there's equality in your relationship. I feel like I can really relate to this. When my husband and I first got married, I was living in Utah trying to get my degree. And uh, I was very scared that there was going to be this expectation that I was going to have to just up and move to Norway and not finish my education, which I would never. But I thought that, oh, well, like maybe he's not going to want to marry me because he's not going to want to make the effort to move to America. And my gosh, my gosh, you guys, he it, like, it wasn't even a question. Like from the very beginning of, of our relationship, when we were, cause we'd been friends for a long time. We'd been on and off for a long time, but when it was like, all right, this is it. From the first night, he was just like, this is it. I'm doing whatever it takes to be with you. And we basically made plans like right then and there. We hadn't, we like had just gotten back together after like not even talking for like a year to each other. It had been so like on and off, but he just was like, I'm doing anything to make this work, Jessica. And he did. He moved to America and lived with me for two years. 
and I got to finish my degree the way that I wanted to in the degree that I really wanted, even though there was a lot of opposition, he was my biggest cheerleader through that and through pregnancy. And I, we moved to Norway because we both had spiritual impressions. It was the right thing to do, but I'm so grateful that I had the privilege of also demonstrating to my sweetheart that I wanted to align my desires with his and I wanted to show him the same love and trust that he showed me. And, you know, obviously this doesn't mean that all of us need to cross the world for our spouses, but metaphorically we ought to be willing to. Yeah. I, I had a really similar experience and I think we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before where I moved to New Zealand to be with my husband and eventually we moved to the States for, for both of us to finish our education here. Something that my first mission presidents said, they have this fantastic marriage relationship and are this incredible, incredible example to me. The way that they describe making decisions in their marriage is always, whether it's a job or moving somewhere or going to school, you have to both be, you have to both get that revelation because when it comes down to it and it's like, it's really easy for you to blame like, ah, well, you're the one that thought we should move here and it's hard now and now this sucks and it's all your fault, right? Like any of these decisions should be a joint decision so that when it gets tough, because it's going to get tough, you have to be able to rely on this. I also received that revelation. And I think it's really interesting and really beautiful that we have in this account of Adam and Eve, both of them partake, both of them to some extent receive a revelation for themselves to partake of this. And you know, what's also interesting is one thing that I really like about the nuance of this word for desire and the specific form of this word only shows up, like you were saying, Jessica, a couple other times in the Bible. It's it's pretty rare. But one of those is in the Song of Solomon, which, I mean, that is one of the most intimate <laughs> descriptions, love songs and desire and everything that comes together in the Song of Solomon. But believe it or not, some people actually view the Song of Solomon as an exposition of the garden narrative. And in chapter 7, verse 10, we read, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. What's fascinating to me is that if you look at what we kind of just talked about, about Eve's role, potentially this hard work and child rearing, parenthood and contributing to society in other ways, I mean, you see that here in the Song of Solomon, even. They get up, she says his desire is for her, but they don't just like go and have this lover's tryst, right? They they work together. They have this toil, they go into the field, and then they consummate their love, right? They, it does ultimately end in this intimate expression, but the intimacy there is about not just their physical union, but their partnership, a true partnership working together. And I think you see those same themes in Adam and Eve's relationship. They're both going to be working side by side throughout their lives. 
And they're going to, from that partnership, build this true, deep, intimate relationship. Okay, so before I say anything, I really do just want to emphasize it is not only possible, but very probable that the way that we read this verse with all of its negative implications or even hierarchical implications, this might be what the writer intended. And we have to embrace that before we talk about dissecting what I'm about to read any further and looking back on everything that we've discussed, it is altogether extremely possible and even probable that this writer was speaking from patriarchal bias. Absolutely. But does that have to rack your faith in God? I I don't think that it has to. Of course, I understand how it can, how it could, how could something from God The blessing given to our first mother, who all of us interpret as the representative or the proxy for all women in this account, how could God let this happen? Of course, I understand that pain and that outrage, but I really just want to emphasize that there are very rare instances where I've ever seen God intervene. I I see him inspire men, endow them with power to work as his hands in this life, but I have never seen him ever possess the body of a man the way that the devil seemed to possibly possess the body of a serpent and speak as though he were the being himself. I've never seen God insert himself and puppeteer humans, even poets of the Bible. I think that he really gives us so much liberty and freedom. And I've been thinking about this too, but You know, even in like, so one of my absolute favorite shows is Outlander. And I, um, I love looking at the Bonnie Prince Charles, who's really an idiot and is the biggest fool of a king, but the Scots really want him on the throne. And it's such a pity and it's such a sham and it's such a shame that this awful, pitiful person is being propped up to be the king of Scotland and take over the crown of England because he's the, quote, rightful heir, right? Like they believed it was his calling from God to be so. And, you know, whatever you think about the divine right of kings, like if there's any truth to it that God would call men to be kings, we have very clearly seen that every king and every man and woman who's ever stepped into a calling, even though we are called to certain positions, we really dictate how we fulfill our calling. And just because you're called to something does not mean you're good. It it is really up to us the way that we fulfill that calling. And we can do so wisely and, and very kindly we can do it in a very good way or we can fulfill that calling and and make a lot of mistakes and cause a lot of pain so even though i think that these writers were inspired and called to do this work i think that they made serious mistakes i think that their i think that their perspectives are inherently damaging anytime that patriarchy is put on a pedestal or set as a gospel truth. So it's just my personal approach to the scriptures that I try to look for it, identify it, call it out, 
but then I cry out to God and I try to understand his mind. And it's kind of like a game of telephone, right? I feel like God gives revelation to men, but it trickles down through them like a game of telephone when I was a little kid. And by the time it got back to me, the message was very distorted from what it had originally been. So I think it's important for us to just, just ask yourself the question, if this really was what was written, can you come to peace with it? Or does this seriously still cross a line for you? And if so, what do you think that's telling you about yourself and your relationship with God? And look there and, and dig deeper as you're going through a journey of understanding. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah, go for it. Um, I do just want to point out to you that there have been some ways to try and explain this away. And again, whatever their validity, I think it's interesting to bring them up. This idea that this being not necessarily a declaration from God that man should rule over, but that that's just a condition of the fallen world. And I don't know that I believe that. I don't know that that's really what this is saying, but it is an interesting perspective to consider. There's a Kabbalistic interpretation of of this phrase, which would be that male supremacy is the sign of an imperfect world. But rather than the, that being just a, oh, well, that's what that's how it is in the fallen world, that again, in the Kabbalistic interpretation, we are intended to actively work against that oppression in order to repair the world, to prepare for the Messiah's return. And so again, whatever, like even if what we're about to talk about and different ways of looking at this and interpreting this phrase, even if those are incorrect, there are other ways to resolve this in our mind. However, we do want to say this is a tough one. This is a difficult phrase to wrestle with. So if this is still something really difficult for you, you are not alone. We are all still trying to figure this out. Okay, so there are many levels to this. So we're going to start with level one. Easiest things first till we get to the deeper stuff. He shall rule over you. This phrase in Hebrew reads as yimshal bak. Now that letter bet is a preposition. And here it is translated as meaning over. But elsewhere, as it appears in the Hebrew Bible, this preposition bet is more often used to mean with. What I've read is that it is more appropriate to use the preposition over with this verb. But I think that there's an argument to be made, and I think that it should be brought up as often as possible, that bet more often as it appears in the Hebrew Bible does typically mean with or in. And I'll just point out here too that in the little commentary that we have from modern prophets and apostles, that's usually the take that we have on this phrase is that whatever the grammatical nuances to it in the original written language, kind of the current consensus is that we should read it as intending equality within a marriage. It's important for me, just from a scholarly perspective, the research that I've done, and I'm so happy to be corrected if I am wrong, because I want to be wrong <laughs> with this. I want it to mean with. And I know that ideologically, what Alin was saying was that 
our leaders in general conference, everything that they've taught us, we should understand ideologically, no matter what is happening with the Hebrew grammar or the linguistics of this verse, we know that God created marriage to be ruling with each other. And we also know from Genesis 1 that Adam and Eve were given equal dominion, power, glory, the capacity to multiply and create life in this new world together. We know that they were given equal dominion together from Genesis 1. So we can already imply that. Um, but as a scholar, it is important for me to note that grammatically speaking, there is not a clear-cut answer as to translate this what we would like it to be. I have found that the most recent conclusions among biblical scholars agree that anytime this particular verb has presented itself with bet throughout the Hebrew Bible, mashal and bet, the context implies the appropriate translation is indeed rule over and not with. But even if this is the case, we don't need to be discouraged to find a blatantly sexist line of scripture in a book that we cherish as the word of God. And I also want to point out, too, that even if this phrase truly means to rule or have dominion over, this term for dominion is a different word than the term that's presented elsewhere, giving Adam dominion over the earth and all creatures therein. Eve is separate from all of these things, and she's on an equal level with the man. So rather than the tyrannical misogynistic image we conjure in our minds, this term mashal rather implies protection affection, caretaking, and defense of the woman. It implies a sense of loving guardianship, not coercion or control. And that paired with modern revelation teaches us that marriage is supposed to be an equal partnership. It's not about coercion. It's not about control. It is not about a hierarchy. No partner is more spiritually capable than the other inherently. Men are not destined to be the mouthpiece for God, for their wives. So, so that's level one of diving into Mashal. Should we go into level two, Alin? Are you ready? I say let's jump in. And just once again, remember that here we are diving into some very nuanced discussion and take it all what we're about to say with a grain of salt, with a pillar of salt. <laughs> Get your wheelbarrows of salt out. <laughs> oh, pillar. Okay. I want to read to you something that William John Dean wrote in his book, Proverbs. He said, the word which is here translated Proverbs is the original Mishle. Mem, Shin, Lamed, Yod. The construct case of Mashal, which again is derived from the verb Mashal, signifying number one, to have dominion. And number two, to make like or to assimilate. The radical signification of mashal is comparison or similitude. And in this sense, it is applied generally to the utterances of the wise. So this root mashal this is the root for the word in Hebrew that means Proverbs. And, and the book of Proverbs is a piece of wisdom literature. And the point of Proverbs is teaching you pieces of wisdom so that you know what to become like. 
it's like the same concept of, of this is the way, this is how to be, this is what you're striving to become like. So in the context of Eden and specifically what is said to Eve, she who was the bearer of wisdom for her husband, who introduced wisdom to him, we have to wonder if this verb is functioning not just implying a sense of having dominion, but perhaps more purely, is it possible? Perhaps, just perhaps, is it possible that this is implying he shall become like you? He shall have the wisdom as you have it, as you gave it to him. He shall assimilate to you just as Eve had gained this wisdom and this understanding and had her eyes opened, is this a declaration that her husband would also have that wisdom with her and enjoy those same desires for wisdom that she had? Yeah, I think it's interesting. So if you look at the meaning of this word mashal as given in Brown Driver Briggs, one of the most commonly accepted Hebrew Bibles, we see it as to rule. But again, like Jessica was saying, as a noun, this can be a proverb or a wise saying, and to be like or similar to, to imitate, to become like. And so we're not suggesting that this is the common interpretation or that this is a common use of this verb, but just that there's some nuance here. And again, if we look at this preposition bait, yes, as it relates to yimshal, it would normally be translated over. One interesting way of looking at it is another meaning of this preposition, which means by means of. And that's really common in Arabic. There's a corresponding preposition, bi, which often means by means of. And so Although that's not, I'm not suggesting that that's how this should be interpreted. I'm saying that maybe from a poetic lens or from an interpretive lens, just like Jessica was suggesting that maybe he shall have wisdom with you. He shall have wisdom by means of you, as in you are the one who gave him wisdom. He shall speak wise words because of you, or even he shall become like you you the same way that you Eve have gained wisdom perhaps he shall become like you once again remember take this with salt we are extrapolating we are adding our opinions and these rare interpretations here but isn't that beautiful okay so I I think it's really important to emphasize that we are taking some poetic liberties here but I also want to emphasize with that that the Hebrew Bible is a work of poetry. And sometimes I do feel a little bit confined. I have a deep love and reverence for the Hebrew language. And I'm always going to give people a clear heads up and a warning when I am stepping into something that is a little bit risky or a bit of a nuance like this interpretation of mashal as a verb is. Even though you see it, you open up in the BDB right to this word and you will see that this is one of the possible definitions of this word as a verb is to become like, to assimilate with something or someone. 
I want to give people a heads up that there is some nuance to it, but sometimes I feel confined when we look at the Hebrew language, especially in the context of the Bible, down to the jot and the tittle, like it's a formula. Of course, grammar is a formula, but the function of the Hebrew language in biblical context is more often than not poetic. So I really hope that you will never take my word for it when I do take poetic liberties. When I say, hey, is it possible that this could possibly mean something else and add a new layer of meaning to the text? I, I hope that nobody will just take my word for it and that they will, first of all, take it with a grain of salt. Second of all, not consider it a solution, but just an extra dish on the table, the feast in front of us for debate that we can all consider and look into and enjoy. A jot and tittle refers to the voweling of Hebrew. If you ever see those little dots and the lines underneath the word, because you have these consonants that are next to each other in Hebrew and the way that you turn a root into a verb, turn it into a noun, turn it into a different part of speech is all through those little dots that you put at the bottom of the words through the voweling and the constructs that you can put it in through those little dots and lines. So that's why Jesus Christ talks about jots and tittles is because just one little line and just one little dot makes all the difference. And for the Jews, when the law became so important and so central to their religion, of course, everything became extremely formulaic when it came to the language with the intent of preserving these most sacred so, of course, it is so important to get the grammar right and to be precise with Hebrew. Um, but I also do just, just want to propose that it's important to bear in mind the poetic function of the text. And as a poet myself, there are many decisions that I make that defy the rules of grammar at times for the sake of catching someone's attention, uh, for the sake of making a point more obvious, um, and, and for the sake of really adding a lot of depth to something that could be quite plain, um, adding a lot of layers to something. So I wanted to read to you a little bit more of what William Dean wrote in his book, Proverbs. He wrote, the predominant idea of the term mashal is that of comparison or similitude. And as such, he proposes, it is better represented by the Greek translation to set or place side by side. So I just want to propose if there's any substance to the poetic nuance that might be presented here. If mashal has this double meaning of not just ruling over or having this protective capacity over Eve, but having wisdom with her, becoming like her, being in the similitude of her, she who was propped up to be this messianic figure, him becoming in the similitude of her, and also this idea of being placed side by side with her. 
this is like a beautiful coming around in a circle. It's kind of like, it's almost like a chiasmus, just as in the beginning at Eve's creation, she was taken from the rib of Adam to signify that her worth and her purpose, her destiny was side by side with him. Is it possible that the nuance of this word mashal is implying that now Adam is being positioned to be side by side with Eve? That's beautiful. I love, love, love the way that you describe that and the poetic nuance. If you know anything about the Hebrew Bible, you know how much they love wordplay. The last thing that I want to suggest about Mashal is the idea of what if Mashal is implying this sense of dominance, but what if that preposition bet, bet can mean over, it can mean with, it can also mean in, like literally inside. So in the context of sexual education 101, that I like to view this verse as being for Eve from loving heavenly parents, I have to wonder, why is this phrase, he shall rule over or maybe in you being placed immediately after she's being told your sexual desire shall be to your husband in the context of childbirth and adult womanhood. I'd like to pose the question, is there something maybe sexual in nature that's actually being implied with this phrase, he shall rule in you? And I would maybe look at this a little bit literally. So this is something I want to explore. Why is this assertion of superiority, he shall rule over you, inserted rather abruptly into a verse whose overarching purpose seems to be preparing Eve for the consequences of mortal sexuality. Seems a little out of place to describe intimacy to her and then throw in an, oh, best of luck, but by the way, on top of all of these physical experiences and your lady parts, your husband is going to dominate every every other aspect of your life. It's, It's my assertion that this phrase with its double meaning of to rule and also to have wisdom may actually be talking about both the physical and metaphysical experience of sex. And and wisdom would have a role in this because the verb yada in Hebrew is also used to imply engaging in sexual intimacy. And when it states Adam knew his wife, knew or no, yada is not just associated with wisdom or literal mental knowledge, it's also associated with the physical experience of sex. So because bet not only means over or with, but means in, when we consider he shall rule in you, we can perhaps derive a more poetic piece of advice being shared with Eve about the literal physical function of the man's private parts inside of hers. And I believe that this is poetic in nature and it's not intended to imply any actual abusive sexual practice of physical domination of a man over a woman. But it's my deeper spiritual belief that intimacy is meant to unite not just our physical desires, but the achings of our souls to become one 
in heart and mind. In intimacy, our dreams unite and our equal naked vulnerability is the only way for us each to achieve the trust and devotion we individually crave. Sex is a physical manifestation of hearkening to one another equally. It's also a manifestation of our emotional intelligence, our emotional wisdom that we've achieved in this life. So is it possible that this is literally talking about the physical function of a man's anatomy inside of a woman? He shall rule in you, literally inside of you, and thus populate your womb and therefore enable you to bear seed. This entire verse is talking about her capacity to get pregnant. So for me, it would really make sense and fit in in the context to interpret it that way. If we're reading this as more talking about their physical intimacy than his actual uh, spiritual superiority over her or his mental superiority over her, I don't think that there's an actual hierarchy being denoted here. At least I hope not. I hope, and perhaps I'm taking too many poetic liberties with the implications of this preposition meaning in, like we talked about before, it most likely means over, but if it could mean with, or if it could mean in, there's just so many layers to what this could actually be saying. And all of those other options imply something empowering. So I don't know if there's one perfect way that we can interpret this verse. Perhaps the poetic nuance of this verse is meant to have multiple layers. Just food for thought. But whatever it may be, what I walk away with now, having talked about these things, is I don't look at this verse and feel discouraged and want to shrink anymore. I get excited. I want to dig deeper into it. I want to look closer. I want to talk about all the possibilities and I want to look at gospel truth, even if we take it just as it is modern revelation, modern understanding and development of our emotional intelligence as a society. We know what makes a healthy relationship and what doesn't, but exploring these possibilities in Hebrew is thrilling to me. And it's been so empowering for me to go through this journey of exploration. And although I don't think any one of these alternative translations is the truest or the most accurate, I think it's interesting to just take a glance at all of them and consider them. So beautiful. Jessica and I get very excited about exploring these details. I wish you guys could have heard when she first called me up with some of these ideas and just the pure joy and excitement in her voice. And as we kind of went down this this path of exploring these nuances, it is so exciting and something we really love. And I hope that that can come across. And just the sense of curiosity and excitement as we explore this and take from this story something really empowering and really beautiful for us. So I want to talk a little bit more about how this theme shows up in clothing. And we mentioned this at the very beginning. We talked actually quite a bit about this at the very beginning, how clothing is ritually symbolic of authority, power, and knowledge. And also 
like we said, ascension, receiving a new body. In some mythologies, this clothing is representative of a new physical body or a new life or a higher level of existence. As we talked about with the ascension of Isaiah, we see this as something that enables you to step into a realm closer to God. I want to talk about it now because it kind of brings a lot of this stuff together in the book of Third Enoch, this apocryphal book, we read that Enoch was clothed with the robes of glory and majesty, after which the Holy One places a crown on his head, which reads the lesser Yahweh, the lesser Yahweh, meaning this clothing and this crowning were symbolic of taking upon himself the name of Christ, becoming like Christ. And everything that we have mentioned about about the covering, the symbolism of God creating coats of skin, and how that reflects the atonement, we are taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, not just in this ritual sense of donning garments, but I think also in the sense when Adam and Eve were partaking, when they left the garden, that was a step of faith in Christ. Because everyone who enters mortality at some level has to exercise faith in Christ. They had to choose his plan. And so as we continue to exercise faith in the Savior, we continue to don symbolic garments representing our commitment to him. There's a lot of different rabbinical interpretations about what these these garments might have meant. One that's really interesting is the idea of this not being like a piece of clothing, but as in the actual skin, the physical skin that Adam and Eve had, kind of implying that they're being given mortal bodies. In this pseudepigraphical work, The Conflict of Adam and Eve, God says, But when I heard of thy transgression, I deprived thee of that bright light, yet of my mercy. I did not turn thee into darkness, but I made thee thy body of flesh, over which I spread this skin in order that it may bear cold and heat. So, I mean, there's some really like very literal interpretations of this as God making their skin and giving them their mortal body. But I think on a much deeper level, there's this symbolism of it representing the Savior's sacrifice, a covering or an atonement. There's the symbolism of this as a priestly robe as well. In Ezekiel 28, 13, we read this large list of metals and stones that were covering those in the Garden of Eden. And then a few verses later, we read the same stones present in priestly robes. And so we see this divine presence and this priesthood authority coming with these garments. And what's really beautiful to consider about that is that at the very beginning of time, this clothing perhaps representative of the robe of a high priest is given to both Adam and Eve. They were both given the same mantle of symbolic authority and power. And like we talked about before, this Abrahamic covenant, which is emulated and spoken of so much in our temple experience this was first given to Eve. It was pronounced on Eve's head first, even before it was pronounced on Adam's head. 
And you know, what's really interesting too, is that in some traditions, and this relates to that Abrahamic covenant, in some traditions, this is the same garment or robe that was passed down through the patriarchs to Noah, who you, you know, who put it on when he used it for his sacred sacrifices. And then it was passed to Esau. And symbolically, when Jacob took the birthright from Esau, there was this transfer of this robe representing the priesthood authority because Esau was not worthy. Jacob was. And then Jacob passed it to Joseph. And even, you know, potentially the coat of many colors that they talk about might be the same robe, whether literally or symbolically. And again, really interesting, if we if we kind of pull on this thread in Alma 46, 24, we read another layer of symbolism. When we read, Jacob saw that a part of the remnant of the coat of Joseph was preserved and had not decayed. And he said, even as this remnant of my garment of my son hath been preserved, so shall a remnant of the seed of my son be preserved by the hand of God. And so once again, there's some symbolic connection between this garment, the priesthood authority that might come with it, and posterity, which are all elements of what we call the Abrahamic covenant, which we should really probably call the Eve covenant. And so this this has deep significance symbolically and ritually to Adam and Eve. Absolutely. And listening to Mindy Brown on the Faith Matters podcast, I love how she talked about Eve as a high priestess in this temple-like sphere in the Garden of Eden. She was the proxy for all of us making this decision, just as only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and pray on behalf of all of Israel that they might have atonement and that they might have eternal life. Eve goes in to this tree of wisdom and decides that she will partake. So all of us will be able to have mortal life. And then Eve is given a new name. Only, only Eve is given a name in this account. Eve is bestowed these royal robes. Eve is bestowed this blessing of a connection. Her descendant will be Christ himself. She's blessed with posterity that's innumerable, that will be multiplied. She's given this Abrahamic covenant. So everything that we're seeing in the Eden account really is the process and the progression of the temple experience and the central star, the hero, the high priestess of this account is Eve. So when we talk about the priesthood, literally priests and these priestly robes, these priestly functions that we associate with the tabernacle, the first tabernacle was the Garden of Eden. And this first functioning high priestess was Eve. And it's wonderful that in our day, because of the restoration of the gospel, when we go to the temple, all of us women, we act as high priestesses as well. And it's beautiful that we get to do that in, in these days. Um, but I'm so grateful to know that the very first was Eve. I love that you mentioned this in reference in about Eve and tying her into being a high priestess and the Abrahamic covenant. Because I feel like that fits in really well along with her receiving her new name, which is mother of all living right which which she receives after going through all of these instructions from god she's then receives her new name which is mother of all living and i think it's really interesting that 
she receives this name after she has partaken of the fruit, so after she has exercised some priestesshood power, but before she is born any children. And usually we tie this name, right, mother, motherhood, directly to whether or not we have born children of our womb, but I think it's more tied to a title of wisdom and a title of priestesshood, the title of mother we see given to Eve, we see it also given a couple of other places as an actual title. We see it given to Deborah as a mother of Israel, and we see it given to the wise woman in Second Samuel 20, also as a mother of Israel. And both of these women are given this title not in reference or in mention of any children that they have born, but in reference to their priestesshood power and to their wisdom that they exercise over this nation, right? Deborah is the mother of a nation, like Eve is the mother of a nation, like Abraham, right? Is in reference to the Abrahamic covenant. Deborah is given this title because she is the leader of this nation. The wise woman in Second Samuel 20 also because she is leading her people in wisdom. And I feel like we also see it again, too, in reference to what I believe to be a possible tie to Heavenly Mother herself as Jerusalem or New Jerusalem, who is titled in Galatians 4 as the mother of us all. She's also titled elsewhere. Jerusalem or Zion is titled elsewhere in apocryphal texts as the mother of us all. And I believe that's also indicati indicative of the mother and indicative of being the mother of a nation. So I love to think of this title that Eve is given as mother of all living and just the title of mother in general in this way that maybe this is more of a title of what it means to be a wise woman and what it means to be one with wisdom and to carry wisdom in our hearts and to look to the divine in our efforts to govern ourselves and to and also in an effort to govern those around us those who we lead whether that is children if that's what we choose to do but more so as we see it in this context in the scriptural context of those around us who we can lead and who we can be examples of wisdom for and how we can exercise our priestesshood power and specifically in Eve's case, and I would say also in Deborah's case, actually probably also in every case where it, it mentions this, but one who doesn't fear death, but one who knows God and trusts in God and knows that through God, she can transcend death. So I love to think of the way that this title mother is used in the scriptures, because I think today we have kind of made it to mean something that wasn't maybe even implied as a title itself. I love that so much, the way that you described that as a title of wisdom. The scholar P.A.H. DeBoer concludes that this, this title, and again, yeah, like you're saying, Natalie, he's calling it a title, not just a role as a mother, but that this title of mother in Israel means a strong woman able to give the right decisions or a counselor of the people. 
So at the beginning of our very first Eve episode, we had this disclaimer that we knew we'd never be able to get through everything in our podcast. This story is just so rich and there's so many layers and interpretations and you can tell just by the length of this episode and how we split it into three different episodes, we have so much to talk about here and it's hard to know where to stop. So we hope that you've enjoyed this introductory deep dive into a few of the different elements of the story. And even though we could never go through everything, our hope is that you come out of this with a deeper appreciation for the faith, the courage, and the vision of our Mother Eve, as well as with a willingness to look at the story with new eyes. We wanted to spend a fair bit of time here, even though it's meant getting behind in the Come Follow Me schedule, because we feel really strongly that how we view Eve's story is fundamental to how we approach all the other stories of women in the scriptures, and especially how we view and imagine and talk about our Heavenly Mother. If we can at least begin to understand Eve's choices her divine purpose, her relationship with Adam, and most importantly, her relationship with her heavenly parents and her faith in the Savior, then we're ready to start viewing ourselves more clearly and to reach for our divine potential with greater trust in God. For all the nuance in this part of Eve's story, and despite all the years of terrible traditions surrounding how we interpret the words of God to Eve after she partakes of the fruit, we view this part of the story as the ultimate triumph. We see in the way that their eyes are opened the symbolism of the clothing that they receive. We see in these priesthood power, covenants, blessings, and ultimately the promise of our Savior who walks beside us and enables this mortal journey back to our heavenly parents to ultimately be one of triumph, of victory, and of joy. So we're going to finish up this part of the conversation here. If you're looking for more resources, a great introduction to Eve from the LDS perspective is Mindy Brown's book, Eve and Adam, Discovering the Beautiful Balance. There's also a whole host of scholarship and writing on this topic. I myself actually have a whole class that I'm teaching online called Our Glorious Mother Eve, which goes in more detail through the linguistic nuances, more cultural context, and different interpretations of each element of the story. So if you're interested in that, I have, I think, about 15 hours so far, and I'm releasing them just a few lessons at a time. You can sign up for that on my website, OurMotherEve.com. And each one of us, Jessica, Natalie, and myself, return to these topics again and again on our individual Instagram pages. So if you're not following us, definitely give us a follow at Our Mother Eve with underscores between the words, Natalie Jean Art, 
and Milkmaid's Honey on Instagram. You can also follow our podcast page at Behold Thy Mother with dots between the words. And then if you have questions or comments about anything that we've talked about or something that you want us to talk about, please message us either on Instagram or on anchor.com, which is where we host our podcast. We love having these conversations because these topics are so dear to our heart. Next time, we're going to talk through some different ideas about the flood narrative, and I think you'll really enjoy that conversation. So stick around patiently as we move forward in our discussions of our Heavenly Mother and women in the Old Testament. If you're enjoying our podcast, the best way to say thanks is to leave us a review wherever you're listening and to share a favorite episode with a friend.